This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Well, it's good to see everybody here. Uh, I've often said one of the best things about teaching is to see what happens to your students after they graduate, to see what they do uh, in their life, in their scholarly pursuits. And so tonight, I'm so pleased to have one of the best students that ever went through our political science department, uh, Laura Tout of Vincent. Uh, Laura was an exceptionally good political science student, as I said. At the time she was here at Whitworth, her interests were not really Africa, they were focused on Eastern Europe and migration issues. When she was here, Laura had a couple of State Department internships, one at the State Department in Washington, D.C., and then another at uh, the U.S. Embassy in Vilnius, Lithuania. And based on that, then, Laura went on to write what I thought was the very best Fulbright application I'd ever read. And I didn't tell her at the time, but as I read it, I said to myself, there's no doubt that she'll receive a grant for that. And she did, and spent uh, a year doing research in Lithuania on migration issues. Uh, from there then, Laura went on to become a graduate student in political science at the University of Minnesota intending to focus on Eastern Europe and migration, and she still maintains an interest in that. Uh, but at the University of Minnesota, they discovered that this person also knows a lot about religion, and that's part of her experience here at Whitworth that, that uh, gave her that background. And they turned to her in classes, uh, sort of as the expert, maybe on religion, and Today in our world, some of the issues that we face with terrorism, with migration, ethnic conflict, uh, tend to be attributed at times to religious issues, religious motivation. And tonight, Laura's going to be talking about that. Uh, she's gone on to do some wonderful work. She's written a number of articles, has done presentations uh, for uh, the U.S. Defense Agency, and she just has a book coming out next year, published by Cambridge University Press, and the title of that is Religious Violence, Local Power Sharing in Nigeria. It's published by Cambridge University Press, and so we're very, very proud of her, and we look forward to what she's going to have to say tonight about ethnicity, religion, violence in Nigeria. So let's welcome Laura Tao. First of all, I just want to say thank you to the Political Science Department um, for inviting me back, to John in particular. Uh, this is really very a, a very meaningful experience for me to come back. It's been 10 years. Uh, I had just been to Lithuania when I was, came back on campus and saw John, and then I have not been back since then. So I've been walking down memory lane this whole last day and a half. Um, but as many of you either already know or will come to know what we're uh, the Whitworth education is a very meaningful and powerful thing, and it's thanks to the investment of John in my own life and other professors, Dr. Strongs, Dr. Michael Leroy when he was here, um, and others that has been really meaningful to me, so thank you very much. You have meant a great deal to me. Um, and I'm going to get teary-eyed, so I'm just going to keep going. Um, so 
jumping into my professional presentation. Um, I'm going to be talking, obviously, about Islam and Christianity and conflict in Nigeria. But I'm going to kind of try and bring you along with me through kind of the journey of developing my research interests and the particular puzzle that I looked at in Nigeria during my uh, dissertation research. Um, so it's going to be kind of a global Africa, Nigeria level, and we're going to get very low into the local level. Um, so that's, let me kind of give you a little bit of an overview of that. I'm going to first jump into the discussion of religious change that's occurring globally and how that's affecting the African context and Nigeria. Talking about civil conflicts, I'm going to be kind of framing my particular research within these two areas. Jump to kind of the puzzle that I then explore and explored in my research, looking at Nigeria in particular and the findings from that uh, period of field work, and then kind of jump into my conclusions. So I look forward in a little bit to your comments and to your questions, and we'll try to answer them as best that I can. Um, the first thing I want to then talk about is what do we mean by religious change? What is happening globally? What's going on? And the kind of first thing to get a sense of is that the rapid religious change that's occurring globally, both with Christianity and Islam, has been going on, especially since the 1970s. And some of you may know this from other classes that are talked about evangelicalism in the global south. Um, but it spans many different religions and cultures, or sorry, regions and cultures, from Latin America to Africa to parts of Asia. We are seeing what scholars are referring to as a revival of Christianity, a resurgence of Christianity, and also even as well within Islam since the 1970s and the revival of Islam. Um, if you look at some of the figures, uh, this is a total number of adherents, Christianity across Africa, Latin America, uh, and Asia. Um, it's somewhat deceptive in the sense that Latin America, majority of the population, 90-some percent of the population is Christian, so some of this is driven by natural birth and death rates. But in other cases, especially early on with the revival of Christianity, the 50s and 60s and 70s, also driven by conversion, as people have converted to Christianity uh, in mass amounts in parts of Latin America and Asia. Whereas in the West, we see in, in Europe uh, and in the U.S., the rise of the nuns, for those who aren't uh, attending church as much anymore. In Europe, it's, we've seen a severe decline in religion. But meanwhile, scholars are saying that the center of global Christianity has, has shifted to the south. It's not on the decline. It's on a rapid increase. Um, and as well, it is, and some of you may know this, strongly Pentecostal charismatic. Emphasis on divine healing, on the supernatural, on power over the, de over the demonic. Um, far more charismatic than we might think of when we think of Pentecostal charismatic Christianity here in the United States. As scholars within political science, sociology, other social scientists largely were surprised by this and have increasingly started to notice it. By 2050, they're saying the world will be increasingly Christian in the global south, non-white, non-Western espousing a form of Christianity far more emotive than we kind of know of or can conceive of here in the West. A uh, famous sociologist, Peter Berger, was one of these scholars who wrote about the increasing secularization of the world as countries modernize and develop. Religion should decline, and it will decline, and it will go away. And he then wrote a book called The Desecularization of the World, saying, whoops, we got it wrong. Uh, in fact, religion is rapidly growing in these areas, even among these developing, industrializing countries. 
furiously religious as ever. Uh, it's part of my kind of field work. Spent time in Kenya, kind of studying this Pentecostal charismatic movement, trying to get a better sense of what it looks like, what it is. And you see it, it's, it's huge churches, massive buildings full of hundreds of people, maybe thousands, and it's tiny churches, little buildings popping up on the street corner, a non-hierarchical kind of pattern of church growth, spreading the gospel quickly uh, for those who are called. But you also see the influence in more traditional churches, the Anglican church, the Catholic churches, especially in Latin America, who are trying to compete and keep up with this massive revival that's occurring, the large tents, the tent churches. And even in Nigeria, I'll be showing some kind of a few pictures throughout, uh, driving in the city. Of course, the most interesting thing is the guy on the motorcycle with the huge bag of whatever that is. But if you look above him, you see the, uh, the banners renouncing at Miracle Crusade, Jesus Crusade. These kinds of crusades and, and major kind of ministry events are occurring all the time and attracting a lot of people. So if we look at the kind of the percentage change in Africa over time, see the decline in traditional forms of religion, traditional African faiths or beliefs, and the rise of Christianity from around 10% of the population in 1900 uh, to around 50% today. That's a massive religious change in a short period of time. What is the significance of that? And, and of course, the caveat is that there's ways of kind of syncretizing both Christianity and you know, kind of traditional religion as well, holding those together. But in general, this is kind of the pattern that we're seeing. Islam also on the rise. So in Nigeria, what does that look like? Well, Nigeria is, uh, is an interesting case because the northern half is largely Muslim and the Christian half is, half is largely Christian. The southern half is largely Christian. But the, the rapid growth has definitely been pronounced there as well. So in the Middle Belt region, so my kind of best attempt of highlighting the Middle Belt region, that kind of oval, side oval there, uh, the north largely Muslim. But in that middle is where Islam and Christianity meet, a mix of both Islam and Christianity in that area of the country. And that's where my research really was focused. And I'll get to that in a minute. But you see this influence even just driving, you know, you just arrive at the airport and you're driving into the city and all of a sudden there's this huge national mosque looming up um, in the city as you're coming in. And it's, you know, you see that pronounced, you know, the intensity of Islam's presence in Nigeria, along with the thriving brand of Christianity. Especially one of my favorites was the Winner's Chapel movement. Hallelujah! Raise your hands. Um, I, I don't know who they're evangelizing from the roof, but apparently, I don't, whatever. That's, uh, that's one of their trademarks, is the winners on top. Um, but you see, with this Pentecostal charismatic growth, you also see an emphasis on the health and wealth gospel, prosperity gospel, faith gospel, it goes by different names. Uh, but some of you are probably familiar with that, and that's definitely a, uh, present as well. Let me get this to stop clicking. Um, so definitely that change is occurring. And what are the characteristics? There's many different reasons why this is interesting and uh, is worthy of study. Malfunction there. Um, but in particular, is interesting is the shift in political theology. It's not just that Christianity is growing in the global south. It's that a particular brand of it is going. 
uh, by really, and by political theology, it's kind of how does a religion understand justice or authority? Um, and in the past, Pentecostalism, especially in parts of Africa, had been largely in, inward focused, rejecting the outward political world. It's corruptive, it's, its influence should be avoided, and you should instead be focusing on your internal spiritual life. But since the 1970s, since this wave of Pentecostal charismatic Christianity has spread, it's shifted to become increasingly externally oriented about transforming politics through faith, through the participation of Christians in the political realm. Complete shift in that sense. Christians should be running for office, should be participating, not to create a theocracy, but by, through conversion, through acceptance of Jesus Christ, becoming a, a, a form, a, a voice of transformation in response to corruption and economic inequality and all these problems. So that's interesting. What does that mean for politics? It's religious change in politics, pairing that with the revival within Islam as well that also has this, increasingly, this emphasis on, yes, there's radicalism, but the failures of modernization, the failures of secular institutions, and so maybe, maybe religion is the answer to some degree. And so we see, uh, you know, in Nigeria, these two things colliding, these two forces, these changes converging. And it's evident in political campaigns. I remember going to one church in, in Joss where I was living during field work, this Koken church is what they were called. And uh, they were handing out pamphlets to teach Christians how to get involved politically. I remember one pastor uh, brought in a speaker who is running for office, of course, um, and he was saying, I'm not here to tell you how to vote. <laughs> but, uh, well, there were two stories. That one where, you know, it's like, he's, we're not going to really talk about Islam, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Make sure you're voting right. And then another pastor who was saying, literally, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you how to vote, but God knows who you vote for. Okay, got my vote, fine, no. Um, but, so we have this religious change occurring. It's fascinating in many different ways. But then, what's, interestingly is, what's interesting is pairing it with the rise of civil conflict globally. We've seen both a rise in uh, you know, Christianity and revivalist forms of Islam as well, sure, but also civil conflict. And what does that mean? Uh, to give you a sense of this change, uh, if you kind of focus on that little, those green bumps there at the bottom, 1970s there, kind of forward, that's interstate conflicts. That's these global wars between great powers, um, you know, that oftentimes when you think of international relations, we're talking about these conflicts between the great powers, these interstate wars. What's interesting, interestingly, the, the new kind of focus in conflict, especially in political science, is on civil conflict, so interstate conflict. You might think of insurgents versus the state, rebel groups versus the state, uh, often ethnic in form. Um, and so this is what's been the driving trend in conflict globally. Civil conflict, interstate conflict, replacing interstate wars as the most kind of prevalent form of conflict and one of the most important problems in our world today. But if you look at, interestingly, I only have this data since 1989. The Uppsala University in Sweden collects a lot of this data. If you look at conflicts within states, maybe, but not rebels versus the state, but communal violence as well. 
So between groups, not the political, you know, the, the group that controls the military or the state, but these intercommunal conflicts, then the data are far more concerning. These are the number of incidents of intrastate, internal uh, conflict over time. So that's interesting. And what's even more concerning for someone who kind of cares about the religious change that's happening in the world is that scholars are increasingly showing that this violence, this intrastate civil conflict is characterized in particular by religious divisions, religious conflict, estimating that somewhere around 30 to 40% of civil wars are defined by, by a religious issue, either primarily or kind of periphery to the conflict, and involve Muslim and Christian or you know, whatever types of religious actors, sometimes intra-religious. But this is a concerning trend, the percentage of civil wars involving religion since 1940 to 2010. What's happening there? Why is this, why is this occurring? If you look at all the countries that have had civil conflict since 1989, this is the red countries. Whoa, that's concerning. Um, yes, uh, Canada is on that list, and I just this morning went and investigated it. Apparently, Hell's Angels and some other biker group in Canada uh, at some point had major conflicts, so this not characteristic of most of the civil interstate conflict we're seeing over time. I don't know what's going on there, but watch out for bikers in Canada. Uh, so rise of interstate conflict, though. UCDP apparently wants their name on everything, so there we go. But uh, regional, if we're talking about regions of the world that are particularly affected by the rise of civil conflict, um, that's the line, the larger kind of uh, number of conflicts there are occurring in Africa. There's work that highlights how the intensity of violence isn't necessarily any higher in Africa than in other regions. But in terms of number of incidents, from the data they're collecting on this civil conflict, non-state conflict, um, it's increasingly affecting Africa. And it dips over time and changes, and there's variation, and that's interesting too. Of course, the line that kind of goes up there at the end is the Middle East, and that's concerning. You can probably imagine why. Um, so taking it to the level of Nigeria, what does that look like? This is just data from 2007 um, to the present. Uh, from the armed conflict events data set. Um, and this is a wonderful kind of economist picture that shows the number of fatalities from political violence in Nigeria. That's not a pretty looking map. And that's just since 2007. The Boko Haram violence, of course, we've probably all have heard about and seen in the news, and that's concentrated in that northeast region of Nigeria. And then you have you know, the other violence, and that, that's a, many different types of violence, but that's that's the violence that I've been focused on, is that communal violence, especially where you see Plateau State. I was living where that big red dot is in Plateau State. But don't worry, it's fine. Um, but this is a picture borrowed from a, a scholar, a friend there, uh, from 2010 when there was a major Muslim-Christian clash in the city of Jos. About 1,000 people were killed, thousands displaced in refugee camps for a time. But as you can imagine, kind of looking over the city and seeing the smoke rise from the violence that was taking place, it was uh, quite scary. And then in the aftermath, of course, many of the places that were targeted were 
you know, churches and maybe mosques in some cases as the, the tit-for-tat retaliation occurred. Um, and so these are some people starting to rebuild one of the churches that had just been built and then was destroyed in the violence. So it's taken on increasingly a religious dimension. Um, and the religious rhetoric really does infuse a lot of the discussion of the conflict. I attended a lot of peace meetings there, during my time there. And a lot of it is debating, well, is it religious, is it political, is it economic, is it tribal, because tribal identity is very important, or kinship group, depending on how you want to think of it. Um, but you often heard these calls for battle emanating from some people's mouths. Uh, attending one of the uh, peace meetings, and again, this was a peace meeting, the pastors were trying to, to talk about how do we resist this urge for retaliation, how do we teach our youth how not to participate in violence, how to restrain themselves and, and not get involved. And one pastor stood up and he said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. If you think that we are just supposed to kind of take the path of peace, you are wrong. As Christian is, Christians, it is our duty to be arming our people. Our pastors should be providing weapons to their congregation so that we can defend ourselves. And in using the rhetoric of the Old Testament, how you know, fighting against these enemies of God. And others who highlighted the goal of Muslims, the goal of Islam is to wipe Christianity out of Nigeria and to, to dip the Quran into the sea. That's their goal. And others who are saying, no, 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 no. We have to even be one pastor at a peace meeting, an Anglican priest. They were, they were asking him, he was a very respected individual, what are we supposed to do when we're attacked? And he said, very softly and quietly, you need to be willing to die. This may be what is required of you. So as Christians... What we're thinking about, what does it mean to take a stand for your faith? These are people who are living that out in a very real way, trying to figure that out and to honor God in that calling. So, of course, as I kind of presented so far, it's obvious that religion is the cause of violence globally. Are we shifting in our seats now? Okay, just kidding. No. Um, but... But we do see a lot in the headlines. We see that you know, Sunni versus Shia and Central African Republic, Muslim versus Christian, uh, Hindus versus Muslims, Buddhists versus Muslim. In many different places of the world, we see that religion seems to be increasingly dividing people and seems to be the source of conflict. But there's a problem here. There's a puzzle, which is that the explanation doesn't quite work. Um, the problem is this. If religion is the cause of violence, if we're going to mount it that simply, then why is it that we don't see violence everywhere where Muslims and Christians are living together, even in these mixed communities? Why isn't it happening everywhere? And so we have to kind of begin to think about, well, how, does that, how does that jive with what I'm seeing in the world today? Why does religious violence occur in some pluralistic communities and not in others. And so this is where the political scientist now comes out and he's, what is happening? I have to go and explore this question. And so this is what led me into my dissertation field work and the work that I've been writing about now is trying to understand and explain what is the politics of it? Is there, what's the mediating factor that sometimes 
transforms religion to a division, a cleavage within society, and other times doesn't. And so to give you a little bit of the Nigerian context, kind of give a brief historical background here in five minutes, don't try this at home. Um, it's a major uh, country, a major political powerhouse in Africa. Um, about 178 million, I think, at last count. It's rapidly a growing population. This is to give you a sense of, of the size of Nigeria relative to part of the US. 178 million people, a little more than a half of the US population thereabouts packed into uh, the Nigerian uh, context. But it's an, interesting it's an interesting case to explore, too, because it is one of these countries where we've seen this religious change, the Pentecostal charismatic movement sweeping into Nigeria beginning in the 1960s largely in the south and then pushing north. Uh, it's a major uh, economic powerhouse in Africa. About 20% of the continent's revenue is generated in Africa. One in six Africans is a Nigerian. So it's an interesting case to explore for that reason as well. And we do see this mix of Muslims and Christians in the middle belt. But what's interesting, and this is what drew me there, is there's not violence everywhere in the middle belt. So why is that? What, can, what kind of purchase can I get on this research question by looking at that area? But some quick, again, historical background. Nigeria, a British colony from about 1912 to 1960 when it achieved independence. What's interesting, too, about this is that when the British colonial power arrived, forces arrived, northern Nigeria was largely governed by the House of Fulani, Muslim, ethnic, religious, tribal uh, kind of group. And there are areas on the fringes, the local tribal groups kind of on the fringes of the middle belt that weren't really as integrated or, I guess, uh, assimilated. And they were somewhat resistant, no, not somewhat, they were resistant to the uh, imposition of Islam, imposition of Muslim religious rule. Can you hear me? Okay. Have you missed all of this? No, I'll start over. No. Uh, so they were resistant to that kind of political force, but the British, you know, being cost uh, sensitive, uh, needed some proxy uh, governance to occur for them. So they thought, well, the House of Fulani, the Muslims, have been dominating this region for a long time. They have some political institutions, so we'll work through them. And so, um, the northern, really the core north, was very much had adopted the language, the culture, the religion, uh, and was more assimilated and integrated politically. And some of those fringe regions weren't. But the British colonial leaders observed, fulfilled the wishes of the Muslim elite who didn't want Christianity coming north, because that would threaten their political power as well. So. Basically, and, and we don't really think of that very much with colonialism, it's like, well, it came with Christianity and evangelization, but they are also politically strategic. They don't want to lose their key uh, proxy rulers. And so up until independence, there really wasn't much evangelization or Christianity going north. A little bit on the fringes, but not much. Um, and so another key point that I, I'll, it will be clear why I mentioned this in a minute was... Nigeria went through a very turbulent period immediately after independence, had successive uh, coups and military regimes, major civil war from 1967 to 1970, the Biafran Civil War, killing around a million Nigerians, some estimate even higher. Um, 
but devastating, essentially, the, the southern part of the country. And as well as being uh, their pogroms and uh, efforts, tribally targeted efforts to eliminate a certain population uh, as well. But what was interesting is that in 1976, Nigeria decided to adopt a federal, more federal system of government that decentralized political power. So they, the, the states had more authority, and also the local governments were established. So what this meant is that no longer were the traditional chiefs or elders the main political authorities at the local level in Nigeria, but they had formal local level government institutions that were set up. Um, but then again, remember, as the 1960s forward, rapid religious change is occurring. The barriers to evangelization of the north are now down, and there is increasingly this effort to then spread Christianity to the north. Um, and we see the first, kind of the beginnings of interreligious violence in 1987. This was the first major incident of Muslim Christian violence in one of the northern Middle Belt states. Uh, and from there on, we see a number of cases of interreligious violence. And during this time, religion and politics is increasingly becoming integrated, sacralized in that sense. Uh, Sharia, uh, a number of states were advocating for the adoption of Sharia in the north, Sharia Muslim, Islamic law and rule, and that occurred with a great deal of debate and tension. Um, and uh, both sides developed organizations and networks to advocate for the cause of the Christians and the cause of the Muslims. So this is the context that uh, kind of developed. It's a little bit of the background. And I want to be clear in kind of my terminology then. When I say, well, then I went and I'm studying religious violence, what do I mean by that? I'm not meaning that, I'm, that religion is inherently violent or essentially, in an essential way, conflict-prone, but that progressively, religion seemed to be the dividing line between communities, these conflicts pitting Muslims against Christians, an important narrative that framed the conflict that people identified with. Um, and so I'm focusing on the interreligious dimension and the communal. I'm not talking about the civil, civil war level, Biafran civil conflict. But I'm talking about this conflict between communal groups and largely lethal violence. Um, and Kaduna and Plateau were two of these states that uh, I started to focus on because they're both kind of in the middle belt. And I know that the violence is occurring in some areas of these two states. And, you know, Joss was one of these uh, the capital city of Plateau State had experienced some of this interreligious violence, so I decided to look at this puzzle. I need to go to Joss. So I went to Joss. Not, uh, not that my family members were very happy about that. But there was no direct threat to Westerners. Um, so this gives you a sense of kind of my initial arrival in Joss, uh, you know, seeing the you know, religiosity very evident on, on every corner, really and driving up to the north, the plateau of Nigeria. I remember people telling me, oh, it's really beautiful up there, and it's cooler. And I'm like, yes. That must mean there's less bugs. Yes. Um, so, and I remember thinking, because I was looking at the landscape, like, kind of dry, kind of flat and barren. Um, but, I, okay, I, I guess. And then the rains come, and that's when you see it all kind of come to life. And it's really gorgeous and beautiful. The same area that was completely brown suddenly becomes completely green. Um, 
and none of this foliage or vegetation was there before, at least to my eyes. But even as you're driving north, the, the evidence of this tension in this beautiful environment, this beautiful landscape is there. And the security guards with their makeshift uh, checkpoints of logs and rocks are stopping cars and traffic, checking them for, you know, anything that might spell trouble or conflict. But arriving in Joss, it's a bustling city of a million people, huge marketplace, a lot of activity. Um, seemingly calm and peaceful, but increasingly, since 2010, Joss is very segregated. Muslims live over there, and Christians live over there, and you, you don't go to either of those communities if you're not of the same religion. But, and that evidence of religious change is also there. The, you know, the evangelistic events, power and prophecy conference, hallelujah. Very, very evident. And you'll hear the all-night prayer meetings and everything like that. So fascinating to kind of see that happen. But again, going to church as well. Be prepared to stop at the checkpoints and have your vehicle searched by security officials. After I left, there are a number of bombings, one of them of a church. Uh, and so then from that point forward, the churches then had the security guards checking the cars before in, they enter into the compound. But this raises the question of, okay, so still, though, why in Joss? Why only since 2001? Why in some areas and not in others? And there's a number of theories of conflict that try to help explain why some countries are more prone to conflict than others. Structural theories that emphasize economic inequalities, poverty. Yes, that's true. Nigeria is very poor. About 90% of the population lives on $2 a day. But that then doesn't explain why we see only some areas that are prone to Muslim-Christian violence and not others. Um, yes, the state is weak, so some of these state-level theories. Yes, the state doesn't have as much credibility or legitimacy. Obviously, with Boko Haram, security, establishing security for the population is an issue. But why, given that general kind of observation, do we see this variation of Muslim-Christian violence? Maybe it's greed, that people are greedy and taking advantage of the opportunity to create conflict and to gain politically from that, but then why isn't that mobilized, instrumentalized everywhere if it's such a convenient way to mobilize people, religion, or grievances? Plenty of grievances to go around in Nigeria, especially with the high levels of poverty. That doesn't really tell us much. Maybe it's some areas have more integrated communities and so they're less prone to conflict, Joss was one of the most peaceful communities up until 2001. They were considered the home of peace and tourism in Nigeria. You see those cars running around with this motto on their license plate today, and you're like, hmm, that's a sad irony. But they were the receiving point for refugees, for people who want to escape the crises. And yet, you know, that doesn't, the networks, the integration between Muslims and Christians that was there is no longer there. So that doesn't help explain that puzzle. So the theory that I then started to think about is, well, maybe it has something to do with power sharing. So what is power sharing? Um, generally, it's something that scholars look at at the national level. Associationalism is another name for it. But the idea is that the more inclusive your political system is, the more likely you should have peace. The more likely people should be able to get along and adjudicate their political differences and grievances and avoid any major conflict. 
The problem is that most studies find that power sharing hasn't been effective in, in maintaining peace, especially after civil wars. That yes, in the short term, it seems to create a temporary peace, but in the long term, leaders defect from the agreement. There's many different reasons why it doesn't seem to hold up. But I began to think about this um, in a different way, and this is a scholars, an African scholar who argues that much of the continent, you know, they tried these agreements, it hasn't really worked. So, consociationalism, power sharing, not the answer. But what I began to think about was I, I, I think there's a way in which this may be important to still look at, which is at the local level. Scholars generally don't think about the local politics that might affect the incentives for communal violence. And perhaps informal institutions, even if it's not something that we are going to establish a peace agreement and we're going to share power, what about the informal institutions that groups might set up or establish among one another that might help prevent some of these types of conflicts? And so my theory was that power sharing may not be defunct. Maybe if we look at these local level informal government institutions, it will reshape incentives for conflict, the perceptions that conflict is the answer. What are these, what's the possibility that this is driving uh, the variation in peace or violence in Nigeria? And so now we're taking it very subnationally. And what I decided to look at, is it possible that in these more peaceful areas of Nigeria, these local government areas where they, you know, decentralize, that maybe it's, maybe they have more integrated political structures. So the chairman, the deputy chairman, the secretary, these are the most important seats in the local government councils. Is it the case perhaps that these that are more tribally represent, more representative of the tribal groups and thereby the religious groups in those local governments dating back to the 1970s, maybe they set in place a system of local government rule that could effectively diffuse these tensions because if everybody's being carried along, what's, you know, you may not need, the religious conflict narrative may not be salient in those areas. So then I'm going to kind of fly through kind of the data collection that this involved. Um, first, there's not a lot of good data on subnational violence, especially communal violence. And so to get a sense of what the real variation is in the north of Nigeria and these middle belt and far northern states, decided to use a method of going through uh, a key kind of newspaper relevant to that region and look for every instance of communal violence it reported. So this involved 13,759 newspapers, which um, I hired research assistants. Yes, I did not do that on myself. But we were basically in libraries going through each month of each year, and then we'd find one of these cases of communal violence, and they'd bring it to me, and I'd go home in the evening and be like, so many people were killed, they were fighting over a bean tree, you know, one by one, in order to kind of reconstruct what this looked like. So it turned out, it turned out there were more than 600 cases of, of communal violence in just the middle belt in the north of Nigeria in this data set. And it allowed me to look at this variation across states. In particular, I was focusing on the ethno-religious violence. So you know, just almost 200 of those were, were between Muslims and Christians reported in that way. And a number were also ethno-tribal. I distinguish these in kind of what I'm looking at because uh, what I found in terms of looking at the events that were most likely to spark either one, the ethno-tribal violence tended to be disputes over economic issues, over land, 
over rights to graze cattle in some of these areas, and the religious events were far more likely to be characterized by a religious offense, someone de uh, defaming a prophet, Muhammad, or you know, a, an offense taken by a Christian against a Muslim. Um, so that's why I kind of keep these separate. And in terms of looking at the different states, focusing on Kaduna and Plateau, because these are both states that have had fairly significant levels of interreligious violence. But in particular, they don't have violence in all of their local governments. So that's what I began to explore from the data, is like, oh, okay, so now I know where it's happening, to what level, to what degree, uh, et cetera. So to test this power sharing thing then, okay, how do we do, how do, we do that? Um, my goal then was to figure out how many of these local government areas in Nigeria, so this is Plateau State, and it has 17 local government areas, so that meant going to all these local government areas and finding out, tell me your history of electoral results, essentially. Who was governing successively from you know, the 1970s to the present? Um, what's their ethnic identity? What was their religious identity? To, recon to construct whether or not some were more balanced or integrated than others. Uh, again, with the help of research assistants, um, kind of carrying that out. So it's kind of a fun part of it, too, because this is where you're meeting with former political leaders, present political leaders in these local governments, meeting with traditional elders and chiefs, and just that, you know, this is where the kind of comparative politics, fieldwork side of things gets really exciting. Um, uh, and basically, in, in, in one case, sitting on the veranda with you know, an old political representative and you know, eating nuts with him and, of course, throwing the nut into my mouth and then him saying, no, you have to crack it open first. Oh, of course. Let me take that back out. Uh, and then, you know, chucking, this, chucking the shells over your shoulder and talking about Nigeria. Um, but so that's what kind of enabled me to kind of figure out what the pattern was. And what, it, what I ended up finding is that, oh, hey, fortunately, fortunately, that seemed to be the case that those local governments that either rotated the positions of power, so in one election, this tribal group represents the chairmanship, the others, the deputy chairman, so a different group, different religious identity generally, the secretary is of a different group. The, the local governments that rotated those positions or, or had a balance at that level were far less likely to experience interreligious violence. The local governments that were either, that were in a pluralistic, they were pluralistic, they had a mix of tribal and religious groups, but they didn't rotate leadership or have integrated leadership, those were the ones that were far more likely to experience the interreligious violence. Um, I followed up kind of some of this work uh, with a colleague of mine, Jonas Bunte at uh, University of Texas, Dallas, who was an expert in the methods side of things. And we found that there was statistically significant difference in those areas that had power sharing and those that didn't and their likelihood of experiencing violence. Um, incidents of interreligious violence were far more common, as I said, in the no power sharing areas. And also elite rhetoric was far less cooperative, far more aggressive in those areas that didn't have uh, power sharing perceptions of the general population about their position relative to other groups in that local government, their own security, were far less positive in the areas that did not have power sharing at the local government level. Um, 
And you, and you can kind of see the general map, but the darker areas are no power sharing, and those were the areas that have had a number of incidents of interreligious violence. Uh, but generally, this is kind of the, the picture that emerged. Of course, the question that, there's still more questions that come from this, which is, why? Maybe I found a correlation. You know, yes, it seems to be this and that go together. But what is it that power sharing does that helps to diffuse these tensions between groups? How does that work? And that's, that involved case study work, looking at LGAs that had violence and those that didn't, not based on whether or not they had power sharing, but pairing those together and, and kind of controlling for historical factors that might affect the differences between them, levels of economic inequality, things like that. But basically, reconstructing the story of these local governments, interviewing people about why, are you, why haven't you had as many incidents of interreligious violence here and, and not there. Remember one of the local governments, Chukin, the people were kind of gathered in this forum with me and they said, well, it's because we share power here. I'm like, I, I didn't even use that word. Thank you for confirming my theory. No, but um, that seemed to be what re-emerged in conversations after conversation in some of these local governments. And so the effects of power sharing just kind of giving you kind of the general summary of how this kind of played out. Basically, that it constrains the politicization of ethnicity. If these groups are all being represented in the local government, then the politicians, it's not really useful to politicize identity because what's, what's the point? We're all being integrated and politically represented. Um, and it was interesting, too, because it's like, well, what made you decide to adopt this power sharing agreement? I mean, this happened before religious violence, uh, you know, started. And, um, you know, for some of them, it, it depended on the local government. They did it for various reasons. There was no kind of one determinant factor. This was why we adopted power sharing. Um, but it, it, what's interesting, too, is because the chairman and the deputy, deputy chairman run on the same electoral ticket, you probably don't want to politicize Islam and Christianity because you both are trying to get elected on the same ticket. So avoid that. But of course, it helps to dispel these fears of unfair play. You know, if you, maybe there's inequalities between groups, but it's far less likely to be perceived as based on identity or religion because politically they're both represented. It helps to seem to be it has seemed to help better represent minorities. So those groups that are really not a huge portion of the population of any local government, but the 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 principle that was established meant that, as I found in one of the local governments, meant that they gave some of these minorities their own local development areas, so some extra funds to help them kind of have some autonomy in the things that they felt were better for their area. And I found that it seemed to spawn cooperation and peace building. Um, so this is a picture, uh, interesting for a number of reasons, not just because of my Nigerian outfit, but because this is kind of unprecedented to see Muslim and Christian religious leaders sitting together in this interview with them, talking about all the ways in which they work together and cooperate and things like this. Joss, where I had been based, I don't know that you would even see this. Um, but they knew each other well, and they coordinate um, their peace-building efforts in the communities, helping to try and demobilize their youth if there's any tensions that are threatening to occur. Uh, this is one of the, the chief of that local government um, who was telling me that, yes, when there's any concerns about the violence happening like, across the bridge in Kaduna, um, he calls on his 
on the Muslim and the Christian religious leaders in the community to mobilize and effectively cooperate on keeping the youth from retaliating or on behalf of what's happening somewhere else. And what I found especially is that one of the most frequent precipitating events of religious violence in northern Nigeria is having it happen somewhere else. That is, if it happens in one location, it's more likely to spawn violence elsewhere because they hear about it and then they mobilize in retaliation. So the fact that Chukun local government, right next door to one of the most volatile areas of religious violence in northern Nigeria, largely kept the peace, is pretty astounding. And I argue because the power-sharing system diffuses this narrative of religious conflict. And another local government in Kanem, I, I was asking, but do you think this, you think this will be persistent? Do you think it'll keep working? And they just say, anyone who doesn't give us power sharing, we're not going to go along with them. End of story. Yes, it doesn't mean that these tensions aren't going to threaten the local government, that they don't have to mobilize to try and keep the peace, but they have the foundation in place, the interreligious cooperation to try and, to try and prevent that. So, what's, it does raise this kind of prior question, though, as I mentioned, like, well, why do some of these local, local governments adopt power sharing and others don't? It's a pretty important question. I looked at it in a number of ways. Um, it wasn't just that these areas adopted power sharing because they had never had conflict in the first place. That wasn't a significant, statistically significant finding. It didn't matter whether or not they had largely been peaceful or largely not prior to the adoption of power sharing and the decentralization of politics in Nigeria. In one of the cases, you know, they knew that with urbanization, the balance, the demographic balances would be changing in their area, and so they thought, hey, let's make sure that we're all represented before things start changing too much, okay? In another case, it, um, in Basa, it was, they referenced kind of the historical pattern that they had during colonialism, but that definitely wasn't the case for all the local governments. And this is, I think, an encouraging finding because it says to us, there's no one path to power sharing. That is, if you didn't have power sharing, or if you didn't have peace in the past, well, too bad for you. You're not going to have it in the future, and you're going to be doomed to interreligious violence. No. I think instead what it suggests is that maybe if the national government focuses on reinforcing these institutions at the local level, they might have better success stemming some of this conflict that we are seeing in Nigeria uh, over the last couple of decades. I'm going to kind of conclude, I don't know what my time is like right now, but I'm going to conclude with a few of my overall, I think, observations, implications of this research, which is that if we kind of break down this kind of big pattern, this big parallel that I started with, religion is on the rise, it's increasing globally, it's politicized, revivalist, integrated with politics, sacralized. Um, and then the rise of civil conflict globally seems to parallel one another, and we see it all the time in the news. Religion must be violent. It makes us think about our faith and, and challenges maybe our perceptions of religion in the world. Um, but if we break it down, religion is not inherently the problem here. We have to look at the intersection of political dynamics and institutions and religion. It doesn't mean that religion doesn't play a role either. It can be used to politicize groups. It can be used to create cleavages, and it does provide a narrative for groups to mobilize. It's not inherently violence-prone. Otherwise, we should see violence everywhere in northern Nigeria, Nigeria. And I think, especially in kind of the African politics vein and 
Uh, we need to look more carefully at the subnational level. How does, how does local politics, how is it constructed? How are these institutions built? We focus so much on the state level, the national level, and its institutions, and that's important. But the local level matters as well in this story, and we do need better data. It's a hard job. And especially the importance of decentralizing power as a critical part of communal politics. Uh, how is that done? Uh, under what conditions is it effective in promoting peace or conflict? But these local representative institutions are an important area, I think, of study and try, try and explore how the local level they construct not only their kind of political systems or structures, but then based on that, how they think about the relationship between ethnic groups. There's so much focus on civil war and ethnic conflict in the political science literature, uh, and it's it's a major area of concern in research. But if we can kind of dig into that a little more at the subnational level, maybe we'll find a, you know, get a better sense of, of what's happening and how to think about the possibilities for peace. And I think that's really what we're driving at. Because we don't just study civil conflict and civil wars. We like violence. We certainly don't. Um, but we want to know what are the possible solutions how can we do research that uncovers some of these answers, makes a contribution towards the cause of peace in the world? So this has been my little tiny slice into that pie of a puzzle, or puzzle of a pie, I don't know, either way. Um, and so that's where I'm, I'm gonna leave it and end it, and thank you for your attention and for your time.